You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church Podcast. A number of years ago, I was having a conversation um, with Peter Maiden, who was at the time the international director of OM. He was in England, I was in the US, and, and we were discussing together. It was a bit of a disturbing conversation, partly because he was in the bath. Um, he was on his way to a conference and he just had this window of about an hour and he said, I've got to take a bath, but we can talk anyway. This is fortunately before FaceTime and such things. And I was like, all right. So he says, if you're here running water, don't be worried. And Okay. But it was disturbing at another level as well. And, and that was that we were just about have exhausted the possible new appointments that we might find in OM. We'd just been in, in Europe at a conference there talking about the possibility of working here and here and here, and it just seemed like the Lord was shutting all those doors. And we were coming down to, I guess, a little bit of a, a deadline of making a decision, and it was very, very difficult. At some point or another in the Christian life, God's ways will baffle us, will leave us somewhat perturbed and maybe even a little bit anxious. But as followers of Jesus Christ, the the ways of God don't always make sense to us. And I wanted to, to talk to you a little bit tonight about what happens when God's ways don't make sense. We've been in a bit of a series in the book of Joshua, and we're up to Joshua chapter 6. This is the story of taking Jericho, the fall of Jericho. And you probably are pretty familiar with this story. Um, It really falls into into two parts. Uh, Firstly, there is is God literally delivering the city into the hands of Joshua and the Israelites. God delivers them, the city, by taking care. It was a very, very well-fortified city, and, and he takes care of the walls that surround it. But then Joshua and the people of Israel, they have a task too, and they are to, to dedicate or devote or consecrate the city back to God. We'll have a look at that in a moment, but it's a fairly troubling passage. Probably if you ever had the privilege of attending Sunday school or so forth, you would have, you would have studied or had a look at, at this story, maybe even marching around and around the, the classroom. And, and it was probably done with, with icy pole sticks and cotton wool, and that's what I remember about a lot of my Sunday school days, whenever possible. You'd stick the cotton wool to something, paper teacher something, but it had to, had to involve cotton wool. And, um, and so perhaps you looked at the story, but, but maybe you skipped past this aspect of it, which is a little bit troubling, a little bit disturbing, a little bit difficult to understand, this, this consecration of the city. But the story goes, as, as you probably remember, that the people of Israel are to march around the city um, over seven days, blowing trumpets and, and shouting on the seventh day. And, and at that particular time, the wars would fall down. I remember um, 
doing something a little bit similar to this, walking around a city's walls. Many years ago in Morocco, um, Sam Scott's brother Andrew and I, we'd been sent there for some meetings and um, um, the people we were meeting with flew in very late at night. And so we met with them and to be quite honest, we're pretty tired after a day's travel, but we, we met with them and we had some fine Moroccan coffee. This is strong stuff, I tell you. Anyway, we finished up our meeting and we're walking back to the hotel and we were wired and we sort of got there and I said, I don't know about you, Andrew, but I don't know if I'm ready for sleep. And he was, yeah, no, me either. Do you want to go for a walk? I said, sure, that's, it's kind of late, but let's go for a walk. And so where do you want to go? Well, let's walk around the city. And so we did. We, we walked all around the entire city of Rabat, um, around the, the old city there, around the walls. And we sort of got back to the to our starting point and said, still not really tired, what about you? No, not at all, do you think it was the coffee? <laughs> Possibly it was. Let's go for another walk. And so we walked around a second time, we're just trying to, to wear this coffee off. But I remember walking around these old city walls and it was, I guess perhaps the closest will come to what it was that the Israelites were doing here in Jericho. Of course, we stopped after two times. We didn't want to go the whole seven and bring disrepute upon um, our visit there. but. But here, they walk around the walls of Jericho on seven days, seven consecutive days, and, and then, of course, the walls fall down and they go in. Now, all except for, for Rahab, the, the prostitute who had shown hospitality to the, to the spies, and we read about that a few chapters earlier. We read that, that everybody else was killed. So firstly, um, this passage, God delivers the city, and we, we see that in verse 2. See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. And then again in verse 5, um, the whole army will give a loud shout and the wall of the city will collapse. The army will go, go up and everyone is straight into the city. So there is God delivering the city into their hands. But now here comes the second part. And this is a little bit disturbing, a little bit difficult to get our heads around. We see that Israel is to consecrate the city. Um, in, verse, in verse 17, uh, we read, The city and all that it is in it is to be devoted to the Lord. Um, now, the word there for devoted, haram, is literally the irrevocable giving over of things or persons to God. And that's why we say to be dedicated, to be consecrated, or to be given over. It can work both ways, actually. The city was to be devoted or dedicated, consecrated to, to God. But then um, we also read that there is a warning, verse 18, but keep away from the devoted things. Same word, on this occasion, though, different use, not the things that are to be devoted to the one true God, but the things actually that had previously been devoted over, over to evil powers. Now keep away from those sorts of things. Um, is the warning in verse 18. And then we continue to read to get a better idea of what does it mean? What did it mean to consecrate these things to God? Well, it's very, very clear now for us in verse 21. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. And so, yes, there is a sense in which the land that they were entering um, was uh, uh, typified by evil and there were great atrocities took place and there is a sense of judgment upon, upon the people of Jericho. 
Absolutely. But more than that, it leaves us with this question of, of when is genocide and is it possible that, that God actually sanctions or did sanction some form of genocide? Um, again, lastly, there's one last reference in verse 24 here. They burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. Joshua, verse 25, goes so far as to pronounce this solemn oath, cursed before the Lord is anyone who undertakes to rebuild the city. So you see here the problem, the problem that we, we have. That is, trying to reconcile as Christians a loving God and genocide. Here it is, pretty much for us in, in black and white. And there are perhaps a couple of approaches that we might take. One, of course, is to, is to dismiss the text and just say, well, you know what, it's an ancient book and it just proves once more that this really has no relevance for today. Well, that would be an unacceptable approach for many of us, including myself. There would be the liberal approach, and that is to say, you know what, it reads that way, but, you know, I bet if there was perhaps some Hebrew scholar amongst us, or we're just waiting for, for some archaeologist somewhere to dig up some new meaning for the word, and then we'll understand it better. It didn't really mean what it's saying literally and is to be interpreted a different way. And again, that approach would be unacceptable to, to most of us here, including myself. So that leaves us with an uncomfortable thought, and that is that no, it actually means what it says. And for some reason, here is a story about the ways of God that is most puzzling. And particularly, I guess, as we think about the events of the last week, we have to ask ourselves the question, how is, how is an event like this different to a man in Manchester blowing himself and many, many innocent people up and claiming that it was somehow the will of Allah? How is this story different? Now, we are going to, to try and understand this and and it's going to actually take us a couple of weeks to do so. If you get to the end of tonight and you think, hmm, still not satisfied yet, that's okay. Stay with us. We're going to do a part one and a part two. And I don't mean to tease you. Actually, I do mean to tease you. It's fun. But, but I don't mean to overly tease you um, by stringing this out. It's just that there's a lot in here. And to do it justice, it's going to take us a, a couple of weeks. And I must confess, actually, too, that I do feel quite inadequate here. There is mystery, the mystery of the ages. There's a sense in which there are aspects of the ways of God that I still do not understand. But when we don't understand the ways of God, we nonetheless have learnt to trust in his character. This is one of those occasions. We understand what the text is saying. There's puzzling, puzzling aspects to it. But we come with that learning posture in which we are hoping to, to glean insight that only the Spirit of God himself can, can give to us. And our prayer has been that, that he will do just that. We're trying to understand the ways of God, and particularly as they pertain to, to this passage here. How could it be that a God of love sanctions the killing of men and women, um, of young and old? How could that be? Well, to understand this, so 
we'll have to have a little bit of a journey. And, and we're actually going to tonight move away from this specific passage and we're, we're going to go down, back and do a little bit of background work. But one question that um, I guess is very apparent right here is, why take the land in the first place? Here is, we've just assumed, haven't we? Here's the promised land. God has promised it. Great, but there are people in it. Why not just take other land? Why? There have been nomads in the desert up to this point. Why couldn't God just uh, uh, let, let little you know, springs burst forth in the desert to all of a sudden turn a, you know, a, a, a barren land into a fertile land? Why couldn't, why, couldn't, why couldn't God actually move the people on somewhere else? You know, um, maybe like plagues or something a little bit less harsh than being put to the sword. There are lots of questions. We could go round and around and around with solutions, but the truth is none of that happened. But why, why this land? Why were they to take this land? Well, it goes back, of course, to Genesis chapter 12, the Abrahamic covenant. This is where God promises to Abraham, I am going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you, and you are to be a blessing to others. I'm going to give you many, many ancestors. I'm going to give you a huge family, Abraham. And I'm going to give you land in which you may settle. You are to be, as it were, a light to the nations. Here is a, and we'll get, get into this a little bit more next week, but, but, but here you are in a, in a dark and desolate, spiritually desolate place. Here is much worship of idols and, and small g gods that are no gods at all. Into this place, I am bringing you to be a light, a light to the nations. But what does it mean to be a blessed nation? What does the blessing of God look like? Well, to understand that, we're going to have to go back even further from Genesis 12. We're going to go way back to, to Genesis chapter 1. And, and here we're going to have a, a brief look at God's purposes for humanity. Perhaps the most important Five words in Scripture are captured right here in our English translation in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created. Now, unfortunately, in Genesis, sometimes we, we get caught up trying to answer all manner of questions. And I can understand why. We're a curious lot, aren't we? I mean, you look at the, the wonders of creation and you've got, to, you've got to ask yourself, God, how did you do that? How did you do it? Remember as a, as a kid, the first time a tele, you, know, you became aware of a television switched on and there are people in there somehow. Our dog still doesn't understand it. But, but how did they do that? How did they get those little people in there? I mean, you look at anything, whether it be technology, but the wonders of creation, and, and it is natural, is it not, to be curious and to wonder, all right, God, how did you do that? Now, alas, while there are some hints in Genesis, that's not the primary purpose. The, the authorial intent, we call it, the intent of the author, is to write about the purposes of God with humanity and to tell us something about God, something about us, something about the world in which we live and something about grace, actually. Those first five words, in the beginning, God created. Oh, let's break that down just a little bit. Let's just stop. In the beginning, God. 
right there, right there. We could fill the rest of the, the rest of the evening with just that thought. In the beginning, God. It means that in the beginning, there was God. He pre-existed all things. That when we build a hierarchy of the order of things, God is at the top. He's first. He's sovereign. He has absolute dominion, absolute rule. God pre-exists everything else. He is sovereign. And so this tells us a little bit about the rule of God. Then, in the beginning, God created. Well, now we understand this is not just about the rule of God, but the rule of God brings life. In the beginning, there was God. He pre-exists all other things, but he speaks now things into existence. This is all about fruitfulness. This is about creativity, about life. And, and there is this, this much repeated declaration. Every time God creates something, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. It is good. This is all about the life of God. So we understand two things just from those five words. In the beginning, God created. We understand about the rule of God and we understand the life of God. And we understand, actually, the two thoughts connected together. The rule of God brings about the life of God. The rest of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 here is description, a macro view and a micro view, a description of the creative activity of God. And it is, don't get lost in the how. It's, it's filled with wonder and awe. It's vibrant and colorful and amazing. It's fantastic. God is speaking things into creation. And he even, I love this bit, invites Adam to come along and see if he can come up with a name for that. And so he does. Well, that's a horse. All right. Well, what do you do if I just elongate the neck here? What do you call that, Adam? No, I don't know about that one. Giraffe. Okay, okay. What if I shrink it down a little bit? Now what have we got? And I put a shell on it. Oh, that'll be a turtle. It's got very long legs. Okay, I'll shrink the legs as well. And I mean, here is, I reckon, fun in Eden. Here is a creative God just blowing Adam's mind away and... Can you name that one? What about that one? What about that one? Can you name that? And so, so here, is, here is Adam admiring, and I reckon, on his back in hysterics at times, just, just laughing at, the, at this life-giving God with whom he shares such wonderful intimacy and relationship. Here is our God creating everything, that we take so much for granted. The ocean, the tides, the weather, stars flinging him into sky and, and then telling them, stay, stay, uh, uh, don't move, right there. Little to the left, maybe. Good, good. And, and, and here is God orchestrating everything and at his absolute command, everything obeys him and he brings things to life. Here is the rule of God. The rule of God is a good thing. It results in good things. The rule of God brings about the life of God. And it's good. It is very, very good. So firstly, we understand that about God. Now, we understand a little bit about ourselves. 
We read in, in verse 26 that we are made in God's image. In the image of God, he made us. It's a threefold repetition. This is important. Listen, everything else about creation speaks to the glory of God. It tells us something about his character. And, and just by the way, just in, in passing, for this reason alone, for this reason alone, we as Christians should have a passion about our world and, and the environment in which we live. We, more than anyone else, should care for this earth. It's kind of like God has said, isn't it beautiful? And we, we take it and, and don't crack it, don't break it, don't muck this thing up. Okay, this is, this is why here is a theology of, of why we actually should and why we do care for the world around us. Um, but God... God displays his image throughout all creation, but, but now comes a very special thing. And only this is said to have been made in the likeness of God, mankind, humanity. We're made in the very image of God, in the likeness of God. He's made us. So if we understand that at least two characteristics of God is that, that he rules over all things and he gives life, we should expect, should we not, that those two characteristics will be duplicated in humanity because we are now made in God's image. And so it is. He says in verse 26b, let them have dominion. In verse 28b, subdue it, rule over it. Now, we get a little bit scared of the words subdue and, and, and rule and that sort of thing because of, sadly, the way that humanity has, has mistreated the earth in which we live. But don't, be, don't shy away from those words, dominion, rule, subdue, because in the right context, this, of course, reflects the rule of God. Is the rule of God good? Absolutely. Well, here is the, the rule of God now placed in humanity. We are to rule like God, and it will be good. What were the two characteristics of God? He has complete rule and dominion. And he's creative. He gives life. We should expect to see that reflected in us as well. And so it is. Verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And so humanity made in the image of God is, is now seeing those characteristics of God extended through us. God's rule is extended through humanity and God's creativity, his life-giving is extended through humanity as well. We have the ability to be fruitful, to multiply and replenish the earth. The rule of God is now extended through us, and the life of God is extended through us as well. So now we know something about God. We know something about ourselves. And I wish, kind of, that we lived in that world. We could call that, that's the original order of things. But then comes chapter 3, and sadly, this is telling us a little bit about our world and the way it is. And basically, we see those two aspects of God's character that is extended through us, humanity. We see those two aspects of his character now marred. In the original order, we see the rule of God. In the fallen order, we see the ruin of Satan. The rule of God, the ruin of Satan. And those two aspects get, get ruined. Um, the rule of God all of a sudden is, is distorted, and we've got the man will rule over the woman. We've got a ground that is now cursed. We've got livestock that is now cursed. There's the, the rule of God, marred. And now also the life of God is also marred. All of a sudden, childbearing will be painful. Fruit-bearing, agriculture, 
cultivating fields, it's also going to be painful. And there will be enmity between humanity um, and the offspring and all livestock of the snake. And so, and so fruitfulness here is, is also affected. So we know something about God. We know something about us and the original order of things. Now we know something about this world and why it is like it is. We know actually how to attribute or where to attribute things that go wrong. We don't... We don't blame God for the ruin of the world. That belongs actually to a different ruler, Satan. A little bit like atheists getting angry with the God they don't believe in. Well, this tells us we don't, you know, the world is ruined. This is not under the rule of God anymore. This is under the ruin of Satan. Um, Jesus puts it very, very simply. Uh, he is, is contrasting himself the good shepherd with, with Satan, described as a thief because he's taken something that doesn't belong to himself. And he says the thief comes to, to what? Kill, steal, destroy. That's right. He's ruining it. And, and so we know, even in the New Testament, something of the nature of these things. But lastly, and we don't want to miss this, there is a note of grace here. And this is very important. We'll see this continue throughout Scripture and redemptive history. But, but right at the end, so, so God walks into this, and he has three declarations to make, one, one to the snake, representing Satan, one to, one to the woman and one to the man, three declarations. And, um, and by the way, it's very easy to hear these as, as being punitive, you know, penalizing us. Because you did this, so it will be. Now, I think there is that aspect there, but here's another aspect too. God is simply talking about the inevitable repercussions of our rebellion. Because you did this, it is now so. Because you did this, it's, it's going to be like this. Yes, it's a penalty, but there's also parameters here. But this is also the inevitable result when something is no longer under the rule of God. Take something out from under the rule of God, because you've done that, it's, it's going to be like this. And there, are, there, of course, is three declarations about the way this, this world is. But here's, here's an interesting note of grace. Right at the end of, of the little uh, uh, chat with the snake about, because you did this, this will be the case, he will, he will crush your head. Now, the note of grace isn't for the snake, by the way, but this is for humanity. The offspring of the woman one day will crush the head of the snake. In other words, it won't always be like this. A day will come where this will be remedied. The second one we see in, in verse 16, speaking with, with the woman, History tells us that the world was actually a very, very nasty place to live in. And with the ancient Near East and so forth, it was, it was not a pretty sight removed from the rule of God. If you were to ask me right there and then, standing, standing naked except for their little leaves in the Garden of Eden, who was the more vulnerable, I'll tell you. Seriously, I believe it was the woman. But here is the note of grace once more. He will rule over you. Now, I think 
there is a sense in which that can be abused. But here's another sense in terms of the grace of God. Who is going to look after you now that you have removed yourself from my rule? The man will look after you. He will now rule over you. He will now give to you that rule and blessing and protection that you removed yourself from, that I, I had provided for you. And then lastly to the men, and this doesn't strike you necessarily, and all of these are perhaps surprising notes of grace, but in verse 19 to the man, he says, from dust you came and to dust you will return. In other words, here is our mortality, a gift to you and I. It's not always going to be like this. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about, thought about mortality in that light, but, but basically God is promising here, it won't always be this painful and this difficult. I will actually bring you into a new life. One day this old body will pass away and you will, you will through, and here's a hint of the redemptive work of Christ, through Christ you will enter into a new life. It's going to be, it's going to work out okay. And right back here in Genesis we, we see these. So, so here is the rule of God and my... My one real purpose in part one, my one real purpose tonight is to help you to understand and how beautiful is the rule of God. The rule of God brings life. It's a beautiful thing. We often, and particularly in Australia, hey, let's, let's face it, we're pretty, pretty egalitarian here. We hate to have an overlord, don't we? We hate to have any politician or any leader who kind of you know, I don't, don't know that even a benevolent dictator would work in Australian society. There are cultural traits here where we don't like too much to be led. But we have to understand there is a rule that you want to come under. The rule of God is a beautiful thing. When God is, rule, when God is um, in charge of things and we come under and submit to that rule, life is sweet. It's beautiful. It's the way that it is supposed to be, the way it is meant to be. Um, the, the English word for rule, it's a bit of a funny one, isn't it? But it's, but it's like, a, like a straight piece of wood. We rule a line with a ruler, don't we? And if I was to rule a line all the way down, down here, there's, there's a few things that we could say about that, that that line stems from me. The, the rule, that line that is ruled stems from me. Um, it's true to me. It's in line with me, and it will lead back to me. Well, the rule of God is all of those things. The rule of God stems from him. Remember, the rule of God brings life, and that life was declared to be good. It's always consistent with the character of God. It is true to who God is. The rule of God is always good. It can be nothing other than that. Genesis 1 calls us back to celebrate the rule of God and to understand that God is loving and good and generous and merciful and He's, he's everything. He's everything that you would want from a loving heavenly father. That's the rule, of, the rule of God. And of course, the rule of God always leads back to God. When you are when you're in line with the rule of God, you will always find that it comes back to him. He is true to, to who he is. Um, it was really what the psalmist in Psalm 119 had discovered. Turn with your Bibles with me. 
Just quickly, let's look at just a couple of verses together in Psalm 119. He's discovered how precious is the rule of God. The rule of God is communicated through the law of God, the statutes of God, the word of God. The words are used interchangeably, but it's the same thing. Here is a psalmist absolutely over the moon because he has discovered the rule of God. Uh, Look at this, verse 1. You'll recognize many of these verses. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. Verse 9, how can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. Look at verse 10, I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. Verse 11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 15, I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. 16, I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Uh, 17, be good to your servant while I live that I may obey your word. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. Again and again, um, we read of the psalmist's delight, utter delight in the rule of God. Teach me, verse 33, Lord, the way of your decrees that I may follow it to the end. In verse 35, um, direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Verse 89, 91, um, 93, look at verse 93, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have preserved my life. There it is again, the rule of God bringing about life. It's life-giving. The rule of God brings about life. The rule of Satan brings about death. Uh, Verse 105, you've got to know this one. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. 129, verse 129, your statutes are wonderful, therefore I obey them. Um, Verse 137, you are righteous, Lord, and your laws are right. God is always right. We might not understand his ways, but trust in his character. Verse 138, the statutes you have laid down are righteous. They are fully trustworthy. Um, again and again, we, we read of the, the delight, the utter delight the psalmist has in the rule of God. My dear friends, the rule of God is the most wonderful, beautiful thing. It's life-giving. And when we follow the rule of God, when we come under the rule of God, align ourselves with the rule of God, whether there is mystery or not, whether we fully understand it or not, it gives life. It is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, Do you remember I I, I was telling you the story of my chat with Peter Maiden? All of a sudden, Peter, he, he he just has a thought. He said, Stuart, have you ever thought whether you might actually the way God has created you, enjoy pastoring more than mission work. And I said, Peter, I've never thought that in my entire life, and I don't think I ever will. But right there, Peter planted a very, very important seed. We did not understand the ways of God. We did not understand what God was doing at that time. We didn't understand how God was leading us. We were puzzled, baffled. We really did not understand his ways, but already we saw this little note of grace where Peter was suggesting, giving us a hint, just guiding us a little bit towards pastoral work. Of course, 
a couple of years later, that would happen. We would be invited to come and, and pastor here at Eltham Baptist, which has been and continues to be an utter delight. You see, even when we don't understand the ways of God, when there's mystery, we simply align ourselves with his will and he delights our heart. We find that, that his ways are, are life-giving. I guess there's another aspect to this as well, and we can miss this, but, but remember, we are made in the image of God. Genesis 1, ultimately, yes, it tells us a little bit about us, but it's really mostly about God, in whose image we are made. It's his story, not really our story. Sometimes we can get lost in our circumstances and lost in, in what's going on in our life, and we can miss a bigger picture here. A friend of mine, I was just, just chatting with him in Sydney, and, and um, we loaned his car for a day, and he said, oh, you were down by the, by the beach there, by the Surf Life Saving Club. And I said, yeah. He said, we used to live there. I said, yeah, no, I remember that. Used to live at the Surf Life Saving Club. He said, Oh, yeah. It was, let me tell you a story. It was so funny. He said, We're on the ground floor, and there's this huge window with um, uh, uh, it's sort of tinted like a mirror tint over the window. And he said, Of course, that was, was the mirror to, or the, sorry, the window to our living room. We would look out at the beach most of the time, except occasionally. Occasionally, people would come up from the beach and, and they'd be walking past the Surf Life Saving Club and they were thinking, isn't that nice of the Surf Life Saving Club putting that huge mirror there for us? And so, you know, he said, we'd be sitting in our lounge room actually looking out at the beach, except now we're looking out at people walking by. And, and there they are sort of adjusting themselves and, you know, kind of, you know, kind of doing their hair and, you know, and so forth. And they just assume that they're looking in the mirror. We're sitting inside in the living room, sort of with our friends, just trying to, you know, keep the laughter to a minimum. It's sort of, hey, we get this a lot, you know, and, and, uh, and he said, he said, but here's a fascinating thing. Kids under the age of 12, but it was always only children. Never in all the time we lived there did we see an adult do this. But kids under the age of 12 didn't see themselves. They saw through the tint. They could actually see through that. They saw past themselves. And every now and again, you would hear them actually say, Mummy, Mummy, look, 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 there's people in there. To which there'd be a sort of a, oh, 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 <clears throat> oh, and then sort of an embarrassed shuffle off out the way. But he said adults couldn't see it. Adults only ever saw their own image. But kids, they were able to look through all of that and they were able to see something beyond themselves. Isn't that interesting? Is that what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew chapter 18, verse 3, of the kingdom of God, that it belongs to children such as this? In fact, unless you receive the kingdom of God like a child, you're going to miss out on it. You have to, you adults, you have to be able to look beyond yourself to see the deep things of God. And there is a part of this story that belongs to a much, much bigger picture than our particular stories. 
This is actually not about the expansion of an empire, but this is about the kingdom of God coming to earth. In this sense, only in a whisper. Later on, it will come in a shout. But here, in this particular land, at this particular time, to a particular people called to be the people of God, the kingdom of God is coming to earth. They will be given a law and a standard, a righteousness that will reflect the glory of God and will be a light to the nations, a light in a very, very dark world. Here is the kingdom of God breaking through in its earliest stages, not quite in its fullness. That will come later through the offspring of the woman. But for now, here is a preview of what God will do in Christ. And the nation of Israel, and particularly this particular part of their history, of entering into a a promised land, gives us a preview of what God is going to ultimately do in Christ, which is perhaps why Jesus says, as he teaches his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. No greater supplication for planet earth could there be than for the kingdom of God to come to earth. The rule of God. God as king to rule once more so that things will be the way that they are supposed to be. The rule of God brings life. The rule of God is a a beautiful, beautiful thing. And tonight at the end of part one, I want to leave you with this thought. The king would love to bring his rule in all of its fullness into your life. That's, that's really essentially, I think, the first way in which God longs to answer the prayer, your kingdom come. I think God says, oh, I would love to. <laughs> I would love to bring my kingly rule into your life. And it's an invitation tonight to us to think not about a land in the material sense, but a a land in a spiritual sense that we sometimes refer to as our heart. And to ask ourselves the question, are there unsurrendered parts of our life that don't yet reflect the glory of God? And to invite the Holy Spirit to come and, as it were, march around and around and around and around and around and around and around around, a perfect number of times to bring down the wars of those unsurrendered parts of our heart. So that his beautiful, precious, merciful and loving Holy Spirit can be ushered in and bring life once more to that which was barren and dark. Would you invite the king in? Would you invite him in to rule as only he can, knowing this, trusting this, that the rule of God brings life? It always does. 
It always does. Let's pray. We want to acknowledge tonight, Heavenly Father, that perhaps we don't always have the perspective about your rule that we should. Perhaps sometimes we think that it might be constraining Asphyxiating, that in somewhere, some way that it will, will hold us back from experiencing all that we desire. But your word says, not so, not so. The rule of God brings life. It is life-giving. We are made in your Image and you love to extend your rule through us, and you love to extend your life through us. So, in light of that, we invite you to bring down the walls of any unsurrendered part of our heart because you are good, irrefutably good, and we can trust you. We love you, Lord, and we pray that tonight and throughout this week we would encounter you and your rule in our life to a greater degree. We surrender those parts of our life that for one reason or another we sense would not bring you pleasure. And we invite your rule to reign supreme in all of us. Let it be, Jesus. Let it be. May we fall in love with you once more. And may we embrace with great delight, like the psalmist, your rule and your reign in our life. Oh, that we might treasure it above all else. Jesus, let it be. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.com.au.